You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm David Payne, bmj.com editor. This week we'll hear the latest about the BMJ's open data campaign and how it relates to Tamiflu. Of course, so with the case of Roche, the Stonewall is we can't get, we're having trouble getting any movement on keeping them to their public promise of releasing data. But first, Wim Weber, a European research editor, hears how whole fish is better than fish oil, at least where cerebrovascular events are concerned. Today we have with us Dr. Rajiv Chaudhuri, who is research associate in the Department of Public Health and Primary Care in the University of Cambridge in the UK. And he's the first author of a recent publication in the BMJ, which is a meta-analysis on fish consumption, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids and cerebrovascular risk. Dr. Chaduri, very nice of you to join us. Um, maybe we could start off our conversation with what prompted you to do this study, because there are some more meta-analysis on this subject. They're, they're a bit old, but was there so much new evidence that another review needed to be done? Uh, let me just start with uh, why we actually uh, did this study. Uh, basically, it has been long known that uh, fish and long-chain omega-3 fats may be linked with uh, risk of uh, coronary heart disease, and uh, current guidelines do recommend at least two portions of fish a week, preferably wily fish. However, uh, we noticed that uh, the evidence supporting a similar benefit for stroke is still unclear. So what we uh, try to do here is basically looking into uh, all sources of information so we looked into first fish intake and uh, subsequent risk of uh, cerebrovascular diseases in uh, the prospective cohort studies. We uh, looked into both the dietary as well as uh, the biomarkers of uh, omega-3 fatty acids in relationship with stroke. At the same time, we looked into the effects of uh, omega-3 fats for uh, future risk of stroke. And we tried to uh, do all these different components of uh, assessments in a single investigation to present the readers with the most uh, comprehensive assessment of uh, these intriguing associations, uh, which is why we actually uh, did this study. And you ended up with a lot of studies. You had 26 prospective observational studies and 12 RCTs. And about the fish consumption, there are no RCTs, if I'm, if I'm correct. Uh, that's correct. Uh, so far, there hasn't been any clinical trial or uh, supplementation trial looking at specifically uh, uh, fish as uh, the intervention of choice. Okay. And go, going back to uh, to the fish studies, what 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 outcomes did you specifically look at? Because uh, so, well, uh, stroke is a very wide concept, of course. Sure, uh, absolutely. So our uh, outcome we define for this study as uh, any fatal or non-fatal ischemic stroke. We also looked into the hemorrhagic strokes, fatal and non-fatal. We looked into cerebrovascular accident and the transient ischemic attack. So we uh, combined all these different outcomes into an umbrella outcome called any uh, cerebrovascular disease. So that was our outcome of choice. And uh, uh, within our study, we tried to look into the uh, cause-specific uh, cerebrovascular diseases, so uh, the specific associations for our exposures with uh, ischemic as well as the hemorrhagic strokes were uh, appropriate. Okay. And if we, if we stick a little bit with the fish studies, um, 
you, you found a striking difference between white fish consumption and fatty fish consumption. C can you explain that a bit more for us? So basically, uh, just to elaborate on the question, um, so the, typically the white fish, um, they consist of uh, uh, fishes such as cod, haddock, pollock, etc. And uh, in these fishes, the oil typically are uh, in the liver, in contrast, the oily fish, they have the oil in their tissues and uh, in their uh, abdominal cavities, has about 30% of oil in total. Now, um, what we saw in uh, this particular meta-analysis was uh, an inverse association for fatty fish. Uh, however, uh, such uh, inverse association were, could not be demonstrated for the white fish. But we think that might be uh, alternatively explained by the facts that uh, most white fish studies that we included in this uh, meta-analysis, they were based in the UK or uh, in Sweden. Now, we, we know that um, the studies where dietary questionnaires for the white fish items usually include battered and deep-fried white fish in the UK. In Sweden, again, frying uh, is the predominant form of cooking method. So this could uh, explain why we did not see an association for white fish because of the way it was cooked. Uh, several detrimental fats might be added, such as trans fatty acids, uh, so which kind of dilute any protective effect that you might expect. Oh, that's an interesting explanation. Uh, so it, it has nothing to do with the actual content of omega-3 fatty acids in the two forms of fish? Only a subset of studies amongst uh, the 38 studies that we had actually looked into this. So because of the lack of power in this uh, analysis, I would have wanted to have actually uh, more powerful analysis in future to, to meaningfully or more reliably assess these associations. Yeah, but it, it's probably a nice reminder that it's, it's not so simple to generalize dietary studies from one country to another. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would uh, definitely agree with that. It's, it's still a, it, it remains a, a limitation, obviously. Yeah. If we now go to the quantification of the effect, how much fish would you have to eat per week to gain some advantage or risk reduction for stroke? Uh, that's a very interesting question, actually. We uh, demonstrated that for every two to four servings of fish per week compared to people who ate one or less than one serving per week, uh, there was a 6% reduction in the relative risk for future uh, cerebrovascular diseases. For five or more than five servings per week, we saw a double uh, reduction of risk, which was about 12% of uh, risk reduction for future stroke. And we also could demonstrate that for every two serving increment of fish, uh, there was about a 4% uh, reduction of risk of stroke. And all of them were actually uh, significant uh, in terms of uh, the statistical significance. Now, this 6% might be a moderate reduction in risk, but uh, in the UK alone every year, 150,000 individuals, they suffer from a stroke. So this 4 to 6% risk reduction might be really significant in terms of the population scale. Yeah, that's quite clear. If you, if you would have to compare that effect with, with uh, for instance, uh, taking aspirin as a secondary prevention, how would that relate to each other? I think uh, in respect to the pharmaceutical interventions, um, the 6% or 4%, uh, depending on categorical versus dose response assessments, are still moderate or smaller, uh, even if you compare with statins, for example, uh, for stroke 
uh, if you compare with the pharmaceutical interventions, fish intake uh, is uh, associated with uh, uh, very limited uh, chances of adverse events. So it's it's a very uh, very easy to have uh, and generally liked dietary measure, which can be uh, scalable at the population level very easily. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, then if we go to the RCTs, that that was a bit disappointing, didn't you think so? Because you didn't find a very big effect of omega-3 fatty acids in terms of reduction of stroke. That was not something you would expect, I think, would you? Yeah, we were actually quite surprised. Uh, one thing we have to bear in mind uh, that uh, the supplementation trials included in this meta-analysis, they were all actually carried out principally on uh, individuals with pre-existing or at high risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, in other words, they were all uh, secondary prevention trials, uh, which is why uh, it's slightly difficult to compare these effects uh, with the observational studies, uh, which are primarily uh, based on individuals without uh, pre-existing disease. So, so I think uh, I would say that as far as um, fish is concerned, we do think that uh, uh, it comes with a very nice package of different nutrients o- on top of omega-3 fats. It's it's likely that a combination of uh, all these nutrients or interplay between these nutrients would be beneficial for cardiovascular and cerebrovascular health. Uh, but as far as uh, uh, omega-3 fats are concerned, I think uh, we still need larger, more reliable trials and primarily based on uh, healthy populations. Yeah, so if I summarize it, I, I think you're a bit reluctant to uh, recommend outright prescription of omega-3 fatty acids as a secondary prevention, but you you really say it doesn't hurt to eat some more fish if you want to increase or, or optimize your risk profile for cardiovascular disease. Absolutely. So only one thing probably um, comes to my mind. There are some line of thoughts that the contaminations uh, within fish, uh, whether that is something that we should be uh, concerned about. Uh, this is something that we were actually not able to address in this particular meta-analysis. Uh, there has been previous reviews and they have showed that although there are few types of fishes uh, which may have some higher levels of this contaminants such as mercury, but still the benefit that fish brings in overall probably outweighs those um, uh, those contaminants. Oh, well, that's a, that's a comforting message, message for fish lovers, I think. Well, thank you very much for joining us and for giving us a very clear explanation of your work. And that research is now available online on bmj.com. Now, Tamiflu. The BMJ has been behind us from the very start, from the summer of 2009, when we started hitting problems following some observations by the Japanese pediatrician Dr. Keiji Hayashi uh, in response to our earlier versions of the review. Dr. Yashi pointed out that most of the data that we based our conclusions on was invisible to us, and it was only contained in a company-sponsored meta-analysis. This started this quest for access, full access, to the complete set of clinical trials, and this quest has not stopped. That's Tom Jefferson from the Cochrane Collaboration, the non-profit organisation that collates data into gold-standard meta-analyses. The Tamiflu saga, as Tom dubbed it there, is laid out on a new page on our website, bmj.com forward slash Tamiflu. 
There we attempt to bring all the details of the story together in a timeline, and we've also started to publish the correspondence between the Cochrane Collaboration and Roche, the WHO, and the regulatory bodies who approve the drug. Peter Doshi, also from the Cochrane Collaboration. If you think about letter writing in general, the power of letter writing, especially when you're trying to increase accountability in the, in the per, uh, amongst the persons that you write, it's always more powerful to include people on, on that letter, so like a CC list. Mm. And so what I was really interested in is, is posting correspondence both ways so that a reader sees it almost as a, a stage play. They're the actors, and one can see how those actors are actually acting. And especially what happens when one is pushing for accountability through correspondence is often one gets stonewalled where the other party refuses to engage. Either they avoid the questions that you're asking or they will simply not respond. And so, again, the concept is if you make that kind of behavior visible, perhaps you can actually achieve progress. Yeah. I mean, in conversations we've had, um, you know, over the last few months, I know you felt the focus of the of the campaign isn't just about, you know, open data. It's actually also about accountability. That was something that I know you you feel very strongly about. Right. Exactly. It's, I see accountability, responsibility, breaking down stone walls as really the thread that runs through all of us. Of course, you know, so with the case of Roche, we're having trouble getting any movement on keeping them to their public promise of releasing data. So there, the stone wall is about access to data. But with CDC or with WHO, these are you know, large public health organizations that have made very uh, important decisions regarding Tamiflu uh, and without re- actually reviewing the evidence base for themselves, have, including errors in their documents. And somebody needs to say, you know, this is not right and we need, this to, we need corrective action. And so we approached them through, uh, through our emails and really got nowhere. And so this is a hope to take that to the next level and hopefully get them to respond to the questions that we're asking. So though Roche have been less than open with their data to the Cochrane collaboration, one would hope that the regulators who approved the drugs would have had better access. However, in the course of the saga, it became apparent that they'd been making decisions without the full evidence base. Tom Jefferson again. What you have are policies which are based on poor evidence. Regulators have made decisions, trenchant decisions, and come, come to conclusions in the absence of a complete set of evidence. This is, I, I think, is the most damning part. Uh, the European Medicines Agency looked at 16 trials of Tamiflu. At the time this was going on, 2002-2003, we think there may have been up to 60 trials. Evidence for these 16 trials was um, only partly presented by Roche, which is what Emma asked for. So it is not the manufacturer's problem. It is a regulator's problem. We know all this because what Emma had, they sent us. So we know that half the trial evidence is missing. And for those trials for which we have reports, half the reports are missing. But how did we get to this position? And how has it been maintained? Peter Doshi. Yeah, we're dealing with the inertia of history. The uh, industry and regulators have worked for decades uh, under 
largely under agreement, sometimes enforced by law and other times just tacit agreements, that the data that would be shared between them would be confidential and, and treated as trade secret. Now we're realizing there's an, a number of in, enormously harmful consequences from those policies in which, you know, arguably drug disasters like Vioxx or Celebrex or Avandia could have been deterred much earlier had the data been available. Yes. So now it's really confronting the history of how did we get in this situation where we thought it was okay for the underlying data, not simply just published summaries of the data, but the masses of data that occur for every tr clinical trial. How do we get to a point where that was just, you know, thought to be okay to keep secret? That's a question I think now we're realizing you know, we have to address. The full correspondence between the Cochrane Collaboration, Roche, the WHO and the regulatory bodies is now available on bmj.com forward slash Tamiflu. In the future, we'll continue to update it with relevant information as it arrives. I spoke to Tom Jefferson about the next step in his campaign. Now, you've talked uh, to me this week about um, you know, a, a separate correspondence that you're starting with the Ombudsman. Could you tell us about that? It is a complaint. Uh, it's an open complaint. So I hope that um, BMJ readers will be able to read about it on the, and its progress on the BMJ website. Um, it is a complaint for maladministration, which is not my term, but it's a European Union ombudsman's term. Um, and the maladministration is represented by making decisions on a pharmaceutical, in this case Tamiflu, by the European Medicines Agency on the basis of partial evidence. They had the faculty, they had the power to ask for evidence, to rerun the analyses like the FDA did, the original uh, pharma analyses, ask for electronics files, ask for the complete clinical study reports, and they failed to do so. And it is a resource problem for them. That was said at a Congress by the Chief Medical Officer. Well, if that's the case, they should be better resourced. But the public should not be subjected to drugs which have been partially evaluated. So continue to keep an eye on the site to see how this plays out in the future. A last word from Peter Doshi about what he thinks the end game may be and how far we are from an open data future. I'm undecided about what, whether legislation is the best means to move this discussion or whether it's clarifying the moral imperative and having more people see that as the case and so it becomes unacceptable to do anything other than uh, increase access to data. I think the, the good thing is that we're seeing this being discussed in more and more progressive ways, in a way that I don't think it was a few years ago, and so those are reasons to be optimistic. As Peter said there, things are changing, and at the BMJ we're hoping to lead the charge. At the moment we encourage all of our authors to make their data set available to other researchers. However, from January 2013, we will no longer consider RCTs of drugs or devices without a commitment from the authors to that openness. At the moment, this will be in the form of a reasonable request from other researchers. What constitutes reasonable, we at the BMJ can't be the arbiters of. However, we will publish any request turned down and expect a cogent reason for the denial. Our hope, as with the Tamiflu page, is to shine light on these requests and for public opinion to compel the authors to honour their commitment. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Next week, Professor Al Mully will be talking about diagnosing patient preferences. Join us then.
For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.